time for our weekly segment, Legally Speaking, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, educating us uh, with respect to the latest legal affairs. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting topics on the show today. I'm reading here, First Nations grandmother allowed to be a party in a child protection case. And you've helped us understand in the past that family law cases can be extremely sensitive as well as complicated. No doubt about that. Uh, and uh, this particular case has a, uh, just a, a tragic uh, description of the background. Uh, it involved uh, three young First Nations children uh, whose uh, parents uh, suffered from uh, or suffering from um, alcohol abuse and substance abuse. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, for an extended period of time, uh, the three kids who were living in Saskatchewan uh, were brought to BC uh, to stay with their maternal grandmother. Um, and uh, so they were lucky to have that uh, grand grandma's uh, support. Uh, but, and this gives you an idea of what a challenging background uh, the kids had. Uh, one of them was a nine-year-old girl. Um, and uh, when uh, grandma noticed within a, a short time of her arriving uh, that she had marijuana in her possession, uh, and she also apparently had uh, what the court described as a extensive knowledge about drugs for a nine-year-old girl, mm. speaking about people doing bumps of cocaine and oh. lines of cocaine, oh, no. changing money for drugs. This is a nine-year-old. Yeah. Um, and as a result of friction between the grandma uh, and the nine-year-old girl, uh, the Ministry of Children and uh, Families, or the director for what they call it now, Child, Family, and Community Services, became involved. Uh, and... Uh, took care of the uh, nine-year-old girl. And then a series of court uh, uh, applications uh, carried on to decide where are the kids going to be and how are they going to be cared for. Uh, and the legal issue arose as to whether the uh, grandmother, uh, who was uh, in B.C. and going to uh, be prepared to care for them, would be allowed to be what's called a party to the proceeding. Like, would she be allowed to participate in it and receive information about it, make submissions to the judge. And uh, she had been clearly uh, trying to participate in it. According to this decision, she had appeared on 16 occasions with a lawyer for all of these court appearances, trying to sort out what's to become of uh, her grandchildren. Yeah. Where are they going to be and how are they going to be cared for? Um, and in this case, the Director of Child, Family and Community Services opposed the grandma being uh, allowed to become a party to the proceeding. Uh, and uh, they made uh, a legal argument about why she should not be allowed to be a party. Uh, and they pointed to the fact that um, Section 39.4 of the, the Act uh, that deals with child apprehensions, right, the yeah, Child yeah. Family Community Services Act, says that uh, you can only add a party, or a judge can only exercise their discretion to add a party uh, only if the matter demands it for the proper resolution of the issues. Demands it? Cases, demands oh. it. The idea is that there should be uh, restraint applied in whether uh, a judge would allow somebody else to become a party to the proceeding. And so the Ministry of Children and Families was trying to stop the grandmother from participating in the court hearings. Uh, and the uh, grandmother wanted to participate. Uh, and the, the part of the director's argument was the grandmother wasn't applying to become the child's guardian, right? And she wasn't the guardian. Her position was, I want to be helpful for my grandkids. Uh, and if um, 
their parents fall into uh, alcohol and drug abuse, she's prepared to take care of the children. Uh, but nonetheless, the director argued she shouldn't be allowed to uh, participate because she's uh, not asking to be a, a legal guardian and she wasn't the child's parent. Um, in any case, the reason the case is particularly, I think, an interesting and important one um, is that the judge utilized some recent changes to the British Columbia uh, Interpretation Act, uh, which mesh up with another act that was passed recently, uh, which is the act, which is the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Yes. That's a British Columbia Act, which is intended to uh, bring some domestic legal effect to the, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And so that act was passed, and now the, the Interpretation Act was amended to say that when judges are interpreting other provincial um, statutes, they should be interpreting them in a fashion which is consistent with the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, and this is one of the first cases where a judge has utilize those sections of the Interpretation Act uh, and uh, the uh, provisions of that Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People to help interpret what should be done with another piece of legislation. In this case, the, the section of the uh, Act dealing with, you know, who can be made a party uh, to a proceeding to apprehend a child. Hmm. And the judge took uh, that uh, those things into account, and because of... Uh, those Interpretation Act changes, and because of the principles in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act, bearing in mind that uh, all of the people, the, the children and the grandmother and their parents, all of them were First Nations, uh, the uh, judge concluded that uh, that section of the uh, Community Family Child Services Act should be interpreted in a fashion consistent uh, with the uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and for that reason, uh, allowed the grandmother uh, to become a party to the proceeding. Uh, and so I, I think the, the particular outcome in the case it sounds like it's a positive one. There's obviously a caring grandmother who wants to help. And yeah. it seems to me in terms of, the uh, you know, these three particularly challenged young people, they're lucky to have a, a grandmother who's wanting to help and be engaged in that way. But the... Um, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's also an insight into just some of the tragic circumstances that um, Aboriginal people uh, sometimes come from. Yeah. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking when you read about a, a nine-year-old uh, talking about people doing bumps and lines of cocaine, um, right? That's not language that any nine-year-old should be um, familiar uh, with. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Uh, but with all that being said, the other really big takeaway for people is that it's one of the first occasions where um, some of those principles in terms of how um, uh, Indigenous people are to be treated uh, has been uh, utilized uh, by a court in British Columbia to interpret uh, another um, uh, act uh, in a fashion consistent with it. And that's what's called for. Uh, by those changes to the Interpretation Act uh, that uh, came in only recently. Um, and so there it is, that uh, perhaps uh, a sign of uh, some of the legal changes that uh, may be intended to uh, promote um, reconciliation. Um, and this is an example of how that uh, plays out 
uh, on the ground in provincial court in BC. I know one of the things that you've uh, talked about in the past is the overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples, not only in the criminal justice system, but also in the foster child system. So the fact that these kids have a grandma that they can be and have contact with, I would suspect is so much better for them than being deprived of that. I think you're right. And one of the things that makes both of those problems so challenging, and you're absolutely correct, the, the percentage of people who are in prison who are Aboriginal is grossly disproportionate to the percentage of Aboriginal people in the community. Yeah. And the number of uh, First Nations children who, who wind up uh, being apprehended is also re- totally uh, disproportionate to the number of Aboriginal people in the community. Some of that, of course, and the reason why that can be so hard, right, is that uh, many of those kids come from uh, very challenging backgrounds, right? Yeah. You know, this was a circumstance where, you know, their parents are described as, you know, dealing with drug addiction and not having a stable home and uh, dealing with uh, alcohol dependency and, you know, not able to, to care for them. And uh, kids who were obviously starting out from a uh, a really deep deficit dealing with all of those kinds of changes. And so that's why I think the, the system finds it so hard, right? It, yeah. You know, everyone I think would agree with the idea that there are too many First Nations children who are uh, in care. But what do you do uh, when you're the judge faced with the nine-year-old girl who's having a fight with her grandma about the drugs found in her yeah. uh, possession? What do you do with that? It, it's yeah. pretty hard to look away uh, and so it's uh, genuinely a struggle. But uh, here, at least in this case, uh, I think the principles that uh, applied will allow at least uh, one person in the children's life who appears to be uh, stable and willing to help uh, to uh, participate and uh, hopefully uh, help uh, get them or keep them uh, on track despite all the obvious changes they've had uh, in the early part of their lives. All right, let's take our break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking continues on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, what's next on the agenda for you and I today? Uh, well, next on the agenda is a uh, ongoing uh, negotiation between the Crown Council Association in BC and the provincial government over their contract. Um, and uh, I was uh, reminded of this uh, as a result of uh, uh, ads that are currently running on CFAX yeah. about that very issue. Yeah, I, I actually don't know anything about it. I just heard them the other day. Somebody asked me. I said I didn't know. So what's going on with that? Well, there's a long history to it. Um, and uh, the uh, one of the fundamental reasons for the dispute um, is that uh, the contract, which was entered into many years ago now uh, between Crown Council and the provincial government, includes a clause that links Crown Council salaries to the salaries of provincial court judges, hmm. sort of as a percentage thing. Yeah. Uh, and what that's produced um, uh, is that th- there's a independent process intended to set the salaries of judges, right? You don't want to have the provincial government negotiating with a judge who's making a decision about the provincial government, yeah. right? Completely unseemly and unsatisfactory, right? Yes. Um, you know, you don't want to be having a criminal case heard by somebody who just got a big healthy raise by the other person you're having the dispute with, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> or vice versa, right? That's not suitable. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so what's happened is because the Crown Council salaries are linked to the judges' salaries, when that independent process recommends a, a raise for the judges, there's been this unseemly history of the provincial government 
politically injecting itself into that to stop the raise from occurring or to reduce it so as to save money on the salaries being paid to Crown Council, right? The, the concern is often not, it would appear, how much the judges are getting paid. It's that the judges' salaries will impact on Crown Council salaries. So that's one of the underlying issues uh, that uh, is giving uh, cause for the uh, protracted negotiations now about Crown Council salaries. Hmm. Um, but it caused me to reflect upon and look back on what happened uh, prior to the, that agreement being entered into. Uh, and it was back in 2000 when the uh, uh, Crown Council Association wound up withdrawing services effectively, right? They effectively went on strike. Now, they didn't call it a strike. They called it then a, quote, study session, uh, which occurred uh, in February. I'm sorry, but you, you lawyers, you always have the most elegant ways to describe everything. It never ceases to impress me. <laughs> yes, there is. So they, they were having a very sophisticated study session. And as a result, when they announced in advance they were going to have their study session, uh, the uh, Attorney General's ministry tried to hire other lawyers to fill in. Um, and they called around to, according to one of the decisions dealing with it, 24 or 25, they described them as knowledgeable criminal defense lawyers in Victoria. Uh, and all of them declined to accept the retainer to come and fill in uh, for the Crown who were at their study session, right? Uh. Probably... Uh, a little bit of solidarity there. Who wants to be the uh, the scab showing up for uh, Crown Council? Not not a great uh, not a great uh, way to uh, present yourself. And so that led to in 2000 a number of cases being dismissed for what's described as want of prosecution. Hmm. And that term is basically when you're being prosecuted and the Crown just doesn't show up. Right? Hmm. What's supposed to happen when there's no one turns up to prosecute you? And one of the cases in Victoria that was dismissed when no crown showed up at all uh, wound up uh, going on appeal to the B.C. Supreme Court, effectively. And so there is a decision that came out then about when a provincial court judge has legal authority to dismiss a case for want of prosecution. Um, And the analysis essentially is that provincial court judges drive all of their authority to deal with criminal law matters from the criminal code. So if a judge, provincial court judge is doing something, there has to be some criminal code section that authorizes them to do it. Hmm. Um, and in what the case that I'm uh, looking at here, uh, the challenge was that uh, even though there is a section of the criminal code, section 799, that expressly permits a provincial court judge to dismiss a case where having been given proper notice, the prosecutor just doesn't turn up. Uh, but what the Supreme Court judge found is that in order to utilize that section to dismiss a case, the accused person must have first entered a not guilty plea. And in the, the case that was being appealed, what happened is that the individual had just shown up for their sort of next court appearance. Yeah. They hadn't been asked, do you plead guilty or not guilty, sir? Right. Oh, okay. uh, and the judge just said, well, where's the crown? Well, they're not here. So the judge stood down for half an hour to see if anyone would turn up, recalled the case. Anyone here? No one? Dismissed, right, for want of prosecution. And so the the Supreme Court judge found that the provincial court judge didn't have authority to do that because the judge hadn't first taken a plea from the individual, right? The Supreme Court has sort of laid out how that should play out if we wind up with a, uh, a study session coming up at some point here if negotiations fall apart. 
what would be required before a judge could dismiss a case for want of prosecution would be to ask the person, how do you plead? Guilty or not guilty, right? If the person, yeah. in the absence of all absence of anyone there prosecuting them, for some reason spat out guilty, well, the judge could go ahead and sentence them, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's only if they say, I'm not guilty, uh, would you then have a circumstance where, okay, now the person's in jeopardy, uh, now nobody is here to prosecute them and they've said not guilty. Well, I guess there's no evidence. There's no prosecutor. Section 799, case dismissed. At least there's authority to do that. Uh, and so that decision, I'm sure, uh, may make the uh, make the rounds uh, if uh, the uh, current uh, efforts to negotiate a, uh, a contract uh, with uh, Crown Council don't uh, come together. Uh, because if they don't, uh, we may have uh, uh, some future study session, um, and then uh, judges and counsel would need to be aware of the uh, authority for uh, what a, a judge is able to do and when. Michael Bulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Five minutes and 15 seconds left in our segment today, Michael. Yeah, the, the final case I think people should know about, again, is a family law case. Uh, this is a, a, a brand new decision that just came out, uh, and it's a case involving... Uh, a person trying to change an order for child support shortly after it was made. And the background is that a, a father of a, a child uh, uh, got wound up with a court order that he pay some $599 or $559 a month based on what his income was. And then nine days after the order was made, he quit his job, writing a letter saying, my job is too stressful, uh, I'm dealing with a difficult family law matter, I quit. And then he went to court saying, well, this is a change of circumstances, right? The order was made based on my job and my income. I no longer have any income, so I shouldn't have to pay any child support. Hmm. Um, and so the judge had to deal with whether that amounts to a material change and whether that quitting uh, ought, would be a sufficient basis for the um, uh, child oh. support order to be changed or the uh, arrears that were accruing to be uh, removed. Hmm. Uh, and the judge found that that was not a sufficient basis for it because one of the underlying principles is that um, when child support is set, it's not simply a function of what a parent is earning. It's a function of what the parent can earn. Interesting. So it's uh, and one of the other, Yeah. And one of the other points is that parents have a joint and ongoing legal obligation to support their children, right? You can't just, you know, decide... I don't want to do that anymore. You know, the, the, the right to child support is a right of the child, not the other parent. And so even if you're not getting along with the other parent, it's your child, it's your responsibility, and you can't just decide you're going to quit your job and remain unemployed uh, in, in order to avoid uh, providing support. Um, uh, some of the comments made by the father who was trying to uh, get out of paying support, I don't think did a much of a favor. Um, he first of all said that he had given $6,000 to his present wife uh, to take an English class, that he, quote, needed a break, that he didn't want his debts dragging into the new year. And then the other offensive <laughs> comment was, other single mothers with many kids have no support. <laughs> uh, and the judge found that none of that was very satisfactory. Oh, oh, really? The judge didn't find that satisfactory? You don't say. <laughs> and... Uh, that uh, that uh, was an effort to try to relitigate the child support uh, issue and wasn't uh, a basis to find that the uh, arrears that were accruing because he just stopped paying yeah. uh, somehow that it would be grossly unfair to him that he would have to pay the, the amount in the future. 
And with respect to the accumulated arrears, which had built up to $9,163, the judge also pointed out that the issue is not simply, um, are you able to pay the $9,163 now, having just given away $6,000 to your current way for English lessons? The assessment has got to be whether it would be um, grossly unfair uh, that you'd be required to pay that over some period of time. You don't, they don't have to, um, and the judge found that indeed, no, it is not grossly unfair and there's no undue hardship placed upon the father to have to uh, pay those arrears in the future. So the point here is that uh, you can't avoid your obligations to take care of your children uh, by uh, declaring it too stressful to work and quitting your job. Uh, the judge pointed out if there was to be a, a medical reason why the father was unable to continue working, he should have presented some evidence of that. It's not sufficient for him to just declare it too stressful, stop paying, uh, and uh, leave it to his uh, uh, ex-wife uh, to uh, pay for his uh, child's expenses uh, uh, with no help uh, from him whatsoever. So don't think you can get out of uh, your obligations by quitting your job because you, quote, need a break or that you don't like the idea of your debts dragging into the next year. I'm wondering, so so he quit the job, so his income's drastically reduced, I would suspect. He still has those financial obligations. I wonder what he ended up doing. Well, probably what will happen is that they will simply carry forward, right? I mean, you're not going to get money from nothing, right? So if a person has no assets and no income, um, well, there's nothing to be collected there. Yeah. those arrears would just continue to accumulate. And then what would happen is eventually when he uh, does have any resources, uh, the uh, his ex-wife would be able to uh, collect upon them. And so the ordered, the point is that he's not able to change the monthly amount that he's required to pay by quitting his job, uh, and nor is it some undue, grossly unfair hardship that Uh, You've got this debt accumulating by having uh, failed to pay anything by virtue of the fact that you quit your job nine days after you were ordered to start uh, paying child support. And so, you know, the decision doesn't uh, mean that uh, immediately the money is going to be forthcoming if the man is unemployed and has nothing. Uh, But uh, if he uh, gets employment in the future and has any resources, uh, that would be a a basis to uh, collect from him, including what he didn't pay in the past. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Always a pleasure, Michael. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. You too.